coming up on See, Here Love. God, I know you. I've sung about you for years. I've read about you for years. I've known you for years. And suddenly you feel so far away. Well, welcome to another episode of See Here Love, and what a great show, and what a great co-host I have for this show. Hey, Matt. Hello, welcome. Melinda. It's good to be here. Excited <laughs> for this one. I know. I am so excited. I'm, I don't know if it's not nervous, but I think it's just, you know, we're, we're in the presence of this guest that we've, we've known of, yeah. read his work for so many years, and has helped us, like, in our own leadership and faith understanding, right? Yeah, when we were brainstorming ideas, like who who could we get? I had just recently read this book, Faith After Doubt by Brian McLaren. And I said, man, if we could get him, Mel, wouldn't that be amazing? And like your team made it happen. So big ups for your team. I know. It was just sort of we reached out and we're like, we need to have this conversation. And what's really great is like the conversation that you, you know, really hosted for our men's panel was really fascinating too, because it was, you know, Chris and art talking about their own perplexity and doubt, even as pastors and ministry leaders. Yeah, we all have it. We've all gone through different, uh, Brian describes it in kind of four stages, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and then harmony. We've all had that in different ways. And so just to be able to be honest about it, it has been amazing to talk about it together. Yeah. Now, Matt, for some people who don't know Brian McLaren as author, speaker, maybe you can say share a little bit about who he is before we get into our conversation. Yeah, like he's former church planter, pastor, public theologian, author, like speakers, traveled the world, like really well-known guy. And then at the heart of it, as as you'll discover as we chat with him, he's like super humble and open and just wants to coach. And he's kind of in that season of life. And so to be able to have that time with him and to dig into this book that he's recently released has just been such a gift. Yeah, amazing. Well, I love this conversation. I can't wait for our listeners to hear this conversation, especially for those who are in all those stages, which he'll explain, but also especially for those that are in that perplexity doubt stage. I, yeah. I find this conversation hopeful and important. So here we go, our conversation with Brian McLaren. So See Here Love is passionate about justice for everyone, everywhere. And that's why we are so honored to partner with IJM Canada, an organization working toward just that. IJM Canada's mission is to protect people in poverty from violence by rescuing victims, bringing criminals to justice, restoring survivors to safety and strength, and helping local law enforcement build a safe future that lasts. If you'd like to be a part of this work, go to IJM.ca and find out how you can become a freedom partner today and help rescue and protect millions of people worldwide. Well, welcome to another See Here Love episode. So glad that you've joined us and what a special show we have. First of all, for the first time ever, I have a co-host. Matt Vincent. Yes. Excited, Mel. <laughs> this is great. I, 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 you're going to do all the work. This is the first time in five <laughs> years. I don't have to anchor this and do it. So I'm so glad you're here with me. And so glad we have the formidable Brian McLaren with us. Excited to chat with you, Brian. And you know, Brian, I need to tell you this. Do you know that the last time that I was in your presence 
with you was probably 2005 or 2006. We were speaking at a conference together. It was my birthday. And I asked you to come to my birthday at a sushi <laughs> restaurant. And to the shock of myself and all my friends, you said yes. So I, okay, I, to this day, I can't believe it. And you hung out with my friends and I, I think we drank sake and ate great sushi and had a great time. Do you remember that? Uh, I mean, if you don't, it's okay. No, but no, I, I do. And I remember that <laughs> big, uh, big banquet room, I guess, where the big meeting was taking place and big table with all kinds of panelists on it. That's right. Here we are. <laughs> and here we are so many years later, still looking young oh, and with go. full of energy. But thank you for that. And, and I need to just say, too, in that, I mean, why it was such an honor was that, and I did get to say this to you at the, at the restaurant, but, you know, your book, A New Kind of Christian, changed me and my community forever. Uh, what it did was totally change the way that not only that I viewed Jesus and my relationship with him, but how I view people mm -hmm. and, and God's love for them and for the whole world, not just my own personal salvation and relationship, but this, this moving of otherness, neighborliness that changed everything, Brian. So again, I just want to mm -hmm. affirm and thank you for that because it was so focused in in a certain way in my upbringing that that just broke open so many things and to this day i'll say brian how i am in, in the work i do in media and speaking and my sense of neighborliness and otherness and people has a lot to do with with your words and you so thank you well you made my thank day so that's much. nice of you to say Melinda. <laughs> thank you that means a lot yeah i just want to make sure that you knew that uh today and i know i've said it before but i just want to say that again and i know matt too mm -hmm. Brian has impacted you in an incredible way. Yeah, I feel like, you know, Brian, it's great to meet you for the first time, but been reading your books and tracking along with you and that your most recent book, Faith After Doubt, um, you know, as a pastor and church planter and working with other people who are leading, trying to create new safe spiritual places for yes. people um, in new ways for them to encounter Jesus. Yeah. Um, you know, you have a whole host of conversations that mm -hmm. go along with that. And I felt like you're this book in particular gave words and shape to so many of the things that we've been working through in church planting um, efforts over the last seven years. And so I'm so grateful that we can now dig in together and talk about that um, because it's not just like a theoretical idea or, or construct. It's, yeah. it's the real people that we're talking yeah. about life with yeah. who are like on the line wondering about Jesus, but working through all these things associated with faith and doubt and wondering how it all comes together. So I'm really excited to have this chat with you. Well, thanks. And I should say, I'm so glad to be with a, a fellow church planter since that's how I spent a big part of my life too. So great to be with you. Yeah. And I know and we will get to talk, Brian. We just had to gush for a little bit and affirm <laughs> because I realized that we just wanted to give you this opportunity or give maybe us the opportunity to say that to you. But uh, yeah. before we get started on the book, I just want to ask you, because I've been asking a lot of our guests past two years, pandemic, so many things happening. How are you doing? And maybe just share a bit, a bit what you've learned, you know, through the pandemic, what you've seen. Yeah. Wow. There's a loaded question, but we really I know all... it is loaded and we but... only have 45 minutes, but hey, we can go as long as you want. <laughs> but I, you know, when you were saying that we met all those years ago, uh, I mean, we've all survived a lot. We've all been through a lot. And things that were building, 
you know, over many decades, uh, it just seems they've accelerated and kind of like a wave you see coming, the wave has begun to crash. And uh, so I, if you say, how am I doing? I think as well as could be expected. You know, I think I'm learning a lot. Um, hmm. If you, in terms of what something I'm learning, uh, I'll tell you one thing that I sort of feel in my gut. I, I'm just learning how to say, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, uh, but I do know how I want to be. <laughs> I, I, I do know the kind of person I want to be, whatever happens. And that seems to be uh, something I'm getting a little more comfortable, you know, kind of settling into that. So the person that you want to be, it's like this becoming. What can you expand on that? What does that look like? What does that mean for you? So, you know, I mean, we could come in from any different angle, but let me just take <laughs> let me just take two angles uh, that almost like are converging. Uh, but, you know, I take climate change really seriously. And anybody who knows even a, a little percentage of the facts knows we're in we're in trouble. Uh, I was just with three of my grandkids earlier this week, and I just think I looked at them many times. It just it came over me mm -hmm. like a wave. I have some feeling for the kind of world that they're in, inheriting. And so you look at that and then you look at political failure and political paralysis. And of course, on my side of the border, I mean, just the idiocy of what we've been dealing with. And uh, a, a famous uh, journalist uh, uh, wrote an editorial this week. The title was something like, how stupid can a nation be and still survive? <laughs> but you, you just oh. think, uh, you think of the number of people who are being, who are getting a lot of help and being stupid by leaders who are misinforming them and playing to their very worst instincts. So you see these things coming together. And, uh, and I think what people tended to do in the past is they would say, yeah, but there's this hopeful trend and this hopeful story and this. And so they would try to beef themselves up with some hope to say everything's going to be okay so I can relax. And I feel like there's a point where you say, you know what, I'm dishonest. I don't know if everything's going to be okay. I can't say that. But, and I'm not going to relax. I'm going to fight. I'm going to work. So I know the kind of person I want to be. I'm going to try to speak the truth, but I'm going to try to do it with a loving attitude. And if things, if worse things happen, when you think things couldn't get any worse and they get worse, I want to have the practices of resilience. That's the kind of thing I need. That's yeah. good. Oh, that's mm. perfect. I love that. That's encouraging. Thanks, Brian. I think those are the kinds of things I wanted. I think there is a sense coming into this, you know, year and new year of just, you know, who I want to become and be. Yeah. I'm in that. I'm in that. I'm in that place right now. What What does that look like for me, as yeah. as a woman, as a Filipino woman in media yeah. and communications and leadership? What does that look like? And especially when you have teenagers, I have a 14 <laughs> and 17 year old through a blended family and. Yes. What do I want to, how do I want to lead the way, you know, for them and, and leave the world for them too? So yes, it's mm. good. It's really good. Mm. So Brian, on the book, if we jump into the book, yes. uh, before I guess, before the content, I, one of the things I, I was wondering about, um, maybe this is a real quick answer for you, simple, but I'm wondering like, how long were you stewing on these ideas? Mm. Like I would imagine as an author, you're thinking and paying attention to things around you, friendships, conversations, people you're pastoring, 
for a while, I would imagine, yeah. especially around this topic, that then brings it to the point of saying, I think now is the time oh, to write the gosh. book. So can you tell us like, what led, like what was going on? No. Or how long have you been stewing on this? Like that now is the time. So this is such a good question to ask uh, because I have the memory that just came back to me recently that uh, I remember the first time I shared the idea of four stages. And and you'll appreciate, I think, the the context a dear friend of mine who is also a church planter, we were both pastors. So this would have been early 1990s. And okay. uh, he, wow. he asked me if we could meet for lunch. And we met for lunch and he said, Brian, uh, I'm in a tailspin. Uh, I've been seeing a counselor, I forget, the last year. And every single month, my counselor tells me I'm less healthy than I was the month before. And so he, he said, I've reached the point where I think I need to quit. I need to get out of this line of work. It's just, I'm not surviving. And um, I, I don't know what's happening to me. Well, that was the first time I took out a napkin and I wrote these four stages. And I, I had simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and I hadn't thought of my fourth word yet. And, uh, right. uh, but so that goes way, way back. And, um, I so this has been part of my thinking, and I actually think I shared some of this with my congregation when I was, when I was a preacher. It came out in a book I wrote uh, a decade or so ago called Naked Spirituality. I use it as a framework to talk about more kind of spiritual devotional growth. Um, but uh, it just felt like with all the insanity in the world, so many people are tipping into that stage three of perplexity that I talk about. Uh, it's just happening everywhere. I, literally, I, uh, a couple years ago, I got an email from uh, a high-level person in the Vatican who had read one of my books translated into Italian, and he was wow. basically in stage three and needed somebody to talk about it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so why don't we talk about those stages? Because yeah. for those who yeah. haven't read the book, um, you know, different different people that we've probably all read and listened to describe sometimes they divide into halves of life or different stages to describe mm -hmm. a spiritual journey or, or kind of place we find ourselves um, spiritually you have these four stages yeah. can you just give us a rundown sure. on what are those stages are and and what how you would kind of describe those in you know and, and, in, in a quick way in a layman's way yeah and brian i think that's great because i think just you're so gifted and I'm so glad you're in the world because you're able to give words to things that we have a jumble of words or feelings and we don't have the word. So I'm yeah. so glad that you are good at well, words. Thanks. Well, thanks. thanks. Like, but you can actually put these into that. So then someone like me can go, oh, that's it. That's the word. So anyway, go ahead. So I just wanted to say that because I think that's so important, the power of words and, and framing feelings within those words. Well, in, yeah. in the interest of full disclosure, I really have to give a lot of credit to my wife because in my early years as a preacher, after almost every sermon, she would say, that was just way too complex. That was way too complex. So she sort of tried to, if I'm at all coherent, I owe a lot of that to her. Okay. But, um, and, and I should also say, I first, there's tons of really great theorists on human development, uh, theories of human development, uh, theories of identity development. All this is a, 
psychologists, so, sociologists, as well as there's whole specialists in theology that deal with this. And I, what I did is I, I studied in a good amount of depth over a dozen theorists and um, tried to synthesize into the simplest framework that I felt added sufficient nuance. So four stages, super easy to remember. Simplicity, that's obviously where you'd start. Complexity, that's where simplicity goes. Perplexity, that's what happens when your complexity tips over an edge. And then uh, the fourth stage I call harmony or solidarity. So those four stages, simplicity, complexity, harmony, solidarity. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony right. or solidarity. And I could give a quick uh, summary of each one if that would be useful too. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, simple way to think about simplicity is it's the stage of dualism. It's what happens to children when grown-ups have to teach children binaries or dualism. Safe, dangerous, friend, stranger, uh, friend, enemy, good, bad, in, out, us, them. All of those binaries that are necessary for a child's safety and survival, uh, they have to learn. And in religious settings, this is 90% of the challenge that we're dealing with. A whole lot of religions are so specialized in stage one that they define their religion as a stage one phenomenon. In other words, it has basically nothing to offer beyond putting things in two categories. Good guys, bad guys, heaven, hell, saved, damned, all those kinds of dualisms. And, um, and, uh, and by the way, it's not just Christianity. You could see stage one Islam, stage one Judaism, even stage one atheism uh, is, is a thing. And I, I've had some readers who've contacted me and said, yeah, I, I left stage one Christianity and became a stage one atheist. So, uh, oh, wow. Um, and, and, and I think of these as rings on a tree. So if you think of this as sort of the backbone or the center, and then some people grow into this next stage, uh, which is complexity. And if you think complexity is when we realize that two categories don't cover everything. Um, so uh, now the challenge is, how do I master complicated realities? How do I learn more? How do I, uh, how do I deal with people who see things differently? Because all of these different stage one groups have their ins and outs and us's and them's. And if I'm now interacting with people in a larger setting, it's now pragmatism is the, is the, is the center much more than dualism. Um, and a lot of people stay in stage two their whole lives. I, I personally think that many megachurches um, today are sort of the sta a stage two expression of Christianity, although they're a megachurch stage one as well. But, you know, you go to a lot of churches and the sermon isn't why we're going to heaven and they're going to hell. The sermon is five simple steps to a happy marriage or, you know, uh, that, that sort of practical living uh, right. skill. A lot of people stay there their whole lives. Some people, though, the complexity gets so great that then they start to look and see how much harm is done by the people in simplicity and complexity. Um, and when they start caring about the harm that's being done, uh, they start caring about injustice and harm. It moves them into perplexity. How could all of these good people say and do such harmful things? Maybe I'm saying and doing harmful things. And now the scrutiny turns on myself. Uh, and when that kind of scrutiny happens to me, to my group, see, stage one people can critique other groups. 
but it takes stage three people to critique our own group. And when that happens, mm -hmm. people are in perplexity. Uh, many get there and they have never met a single other Christian in, in uh, perplexity and they feel totally alone and they go tell their pastor, yeah. raise their concern. And their pastor says, don't ask questions like that. They give them a Bible verse. They tell them you're a doubter. They cast the demon out of them or something. And, and then the person just thinks I'm out of this religion. There's no place here for me. Or mm. they have a last ditch effort. They say, maybe I can find something somewhere. And they go off sort of on their last chance to keep faith. Um, but a lot of people stay in stage three their whole lives. And then I think more and more people, though, stay, stay in stage three long enough where they say, okay, I can deconstruct everything. I can scrutinize everything. I can critique everything. I know everything I'm against. I have no idea what I'm for. And when they go yeah. off in search yeah. of something to be for after critique, I think that's what brings them into that stage four of harmony and solidarity. Brian, let's talk about yeah. that because, you know, Matt and I are talking a lot about, in, in my world, so many people deconstructing. Yes. So yes. many people in that perplexity doubt uh you know doubt space right matt yes. like i mean and and some are kind of reconstructing coming out but i know a lot that are just staying there yeah they're staying in kind of that perplexity and and honestly i don't know i don't know what, what here's what here's the thing i don't know what to say or encourage because i i feel like i don't want them to stay there but i also don't know how to encourage them to to move out into solidarity and yeah. harmony do you know yeah. what i mean yes. i've got this, this and it's and i i mean it, again i don't want it to be about me because i know that people are in that space but it's hard yes having friends that it seemed like they knew <laughs> what they believed and who they believed in and who they yeah. loved coming into this complete different space yeah what, what's your encouragement to that because i think it's 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 hard yes well, I, I'm, I'm going to not be super, uh, I, I don't have an, a sort of easy answer for you on this, Melinda, as okay. you might expect. <laughs> okay. But here's, uh, maybe I can say two or three things. The first thing I would say is some of them will never come back. Um, and, and they have good reasons to never come back. Um, like, let me use a, 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 an example that's heartbreaking to everyone. But for example, you know, in Canada, there's been all these recent revelations of more and more mass graves of children being found, you know, in Catholic and other and, and Protestant uh, uh, boarding schools and so, so on from, um, from Indigenous First Nations people. Um, uh, look, there are people who have been so traumatized by uh, mm -hmm. pedophile priests and, and abusive pastors and narcissistic religious leaders, they've been so damaged that it, it may be that they just need to stay away from this thing for the foreseeable future. Um, I think there's another whole group of people who need to stay away until there's enough change in existing Christian communities that there's something for them to come back to. And to ask them to come back before they found a place where it's safe. I'm thinking about what you said uh, a few minutes ago um, about creating um, safe spaces, Matt. Um, uh, you know, this just, we can't rush it. They, and I think we have to extend grace to people and say, you have good reasons and I, I trust you for having good reasons. Um, and, and I think other people, to be honest, rush back way too soon. They think, 
I fixed this, this, and this problem. Everything's fine now. And you want to say to him, eh, eh, no, not, not quite. Uh, but you know what? That might mean they reconstruct and then they have to deconstruct again because there's more work to be done. The way I would say it, though, is that if you think of it as rings on a tree, the skill of deconstruction is something you never lose. And in fact, you need it. Um, but then you add this new set of skills of integration and of empathy and compassion and of the ability to say, I don't know, um, as we were talking about before. You add those skills and then uh, you, you're able to, you don't lose the earlier critique, but you have something bigger to hold it in. And maybe, Melinda, the only thing at the end of the day you can do is just demonstrate without even needing to say a lot about it, that you're a person in a different place and people will catch on. Uh, you know, people will get it. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll feel it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, good. Sometimes we think about our faith. I mean, this is part of my own journey in my early 20s where it felt like you couldn't ask certain questions and yeah. the moment you did ask certain questions, it was like you're dismantling the, the brick wall of your faith and yeah. you're looking at the pieces and you're, I was for myself trying to figure out how do these go back together and you know truthfully some of those bricks that used to help help hold up the the wall i never i never put them back yes mm -hmm. but it was an important part of me and sometimes i think the the critique is that in that doubting perplexity stage it's viewed always in a negative manner yes. when the flip side is also really true where it can actually be a very healthy important place to be in for us to own the our faith for ourselves rather than something that's prescribed on us or given to us yes that we just absorb. It's like, for me to really own it, I had to like pull it apart. Yes. And so I wanna like also value that, that there's like important work that God does in oh. us while we're in those places. Not that it has to be our final destination, but man, that's a valuable space. Can you talk to that oh, about my the goodness. value of being in that space? Um, my Good. goodness, Matt, that's so, so important. So um, at the end of the book and the very end, I talk about this realization I had while I was writing and, and the realization was this, that all of my doubts at the end of the day were doubts about one thing. And it was the idea of supremacy. Um, and I realized that the version of Christianity that I inherited was thoroughly, every part of it was filled, was flavored. I, I wanna say poisoned, but I'll say flavored with, with Christian supremacy. But then I realized that a big part of that Christian supremacy was white supremacy and male supremacy. And suddenly, you know, part of my theological reconstruction has been to understand Jesus as, in a sense, subverting supremacy. When he gets down and, and washes the disciples' feet, he's saying, everything you're thinking about of people getting at the top, I'm going to the bottom. I'm setting an example for you. The whole idea of supremacy is a flawed idea. I'm not offering you a new plan to get to the top of the pyramid. I'm saying, stop trying to climb the stupid pyramid, right? And, and uh, so here, here's the thing. A whole lot of people want to put their faith back together. But now I, I believe, uh, I, I certainly could be wrong about this, but I believe that if the Holy Spirit is working in us, the Holy Spirit's trying to get us to the point where we leave these supremacies behind forever because they're not 
reflective of God. They're not reflective of Jesus. They are reflective of 1,800 years of Christian history, but uh, and, uh, of a lot of Christian history. But mm-hmm. we're at this juncture, and, and that's why I say we can't rush people, uh, as you both are saying. We, we have to uh, allow people to be where they are and go through the changes that they need to go through. I, lo- I, I love that. In that, I feel there's a part where in order to get to that place of harmony, um, it required me, maybe I would love to know your thoughts on this. It required me to embrace a little bit of um, a sense of mystery yes. and leaving things unknown and being okay with that, being okay, you know, from your stage one description of it's either this or that, yes. the dualism to say, I don't know, and allowing that to be a legitimate answer. Yes. Um, I often think of like, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified, like yes. keeping Jesus at the center. And the rest of the things are like, yeah, we can talk a lot. And there's history of the church and our best understanding through the years. Those are all important things to talk and wrestle with. But at the end of the day, like I have to embrace, I've had to learn to embrace a bit of mystery, which yes. can feel for some like maybe like a slippery slope. But for me, it's been so freeing to not try to hang oh, everything my. on those pieces. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I totally do. And that's such an important insight. So first, it, I would put two words together. Uh, the word mystery and the word humility. Um, Because, Mm. you know, one of the reasons we don't recognize mystery is because we are proud and think I should be able to understand everything, right? Mm. So mystery and humility really go together. There's a humbling that happens in in these stages, and especially in stage three, uh, where we, we finally reach the point we're able to say, I don't know. I don't know. I trust, I hope, I love. Isn't it interesting that Paul says, faith, hope, and love are the greatest things. And so instead of saying, I know, we say, I hope. Instead of saying, I know, I say, I trust. Instead of saying, I know, I say, I love. Um, In fact, right after, right in that same chapter, Paul says, we know in part. Our knowledge is always partial. So this, this is part of maturity. And in fact, but here's our problem. Stage one has defined Christianity for so many people for so long that we think that's normal. I think in 500 years, they'll look back and see these recent centuries of Christianity as this really, this really dark period where they thought they were so great and they really had lost the plot. Um, and that's not to put down anybody. It's just to say these things happen. And I think this process that, that we're in, uh, it's not just important for us and our spiritual well-being. It's important because if we have another 500 years of arrogant, know-it-all, white Christians running around the world trying to tell everybody else how to live and what to do, um, they are not mm-hmm. doing a good job of it. And, uh, and I don't think the world can... Well, in fact, a, a First Nations scholar in Canada, Wazi Atawan, said, I don't think the earth can sustain 500 more years of that kind of Christian domination. Yeah. Uh, it has to yeah. change. Yeah. You know, Brian, yeah. I think there's, you know, as, you're, as I'm listening, I, I'm hearing that for some people, the fear of hope and faith and love is scary because yes. given the answers, it's easier to live that way. So yes. now I know very clearly this is yes, this is no, 
I do this step, I do that step. So in a way it's like either people are afraid to think, yes. <laughs> people it, it, are insecure about actually making their own decisions and it's easier to live when somebody tells them what to do and they just do it. Right. So then, yes. so then there, it's an easy life. I don't yes. have to get messy. Yes. I, I want you, I want you to sort of talk on that because I feel like that's yeah. part of it. And then there's people who are like, we've been told that, but we we're, we're kind of pulling back the curtain and realizing, Oh wait, that's actually not following Jesus at all. Yeah. Boy, as you say this, Melinda, I think you've nailed it. Um, but I think for example, of a couple I met, uh, well, before COVID, so about two years ago. And it was a pastor, and uh, and I think his wife was a teacher. Uh, uh, I don't know what primary or secondary teacher. And one of their kids came out as gay. So all of their life, they had the world figured out. They didn't know any out gay people. And the first one they meet is their son. And... So now their life just got complicated and mm. and they they go through all kinds of adjustment and figure out what they're going to do. The pastor goes to his board and says, look, I need you to know my son has come out and I've always taught this one way. I think I was wrong. My son is helping me see this. By the grace of God, his leadership team said, we love you. We respect you. We love your son. So they basically said, we're going to enter into a period of not knowing. Uh, we used to have this figured out. We don't anymore. Um, now, the way that story ended was, uh, of course, it's not over yet. But what happened next was their son kept hearing Christians uh, stigmatize gay people so much that he joined a cultic Christian group and renounced being gay and and has almost cut his parents off because they accepted him. And so wow. they're seeing oh. there. And, and one way to say it is their son at a young age is in stage two, maybe going into stage three, and it became too much to handle. And so he reverted to stage one as a way of he, he just couldn't handle anymore. And the reason I bring up that story, Melinda, is it's not just that there's something easy about being in a stage one community where your authority figures tell you what to think and they do your thinking for you and you're part of a group and everybody agrees. It's that there are terrible punishments if you break out and if you differ. Mm -hmm. and, and what the pastor found is he was able to break out. He was a leader in the group and, they, and his leaders followed him. His son wasn't able to break out. And, uh, wow. and he just didn't have, well, he didn't have the power, didn't have the maturity. And so who, who knows what will happen with his son, but it's just, it's just, to me, that was this, there's the drama happening, you know, right there mm -hmm. in one family. I love that in your book, you also talk about, you mentioned in the interview too, about the, the concentric rings of the tree. Yeah. And you're clear in your writing that it's not a sense of arrival. Yes. It's not like you get to stage four and it's like, hey, look at me, I figured it out. It's yeah. almost like stage four becomes a new form of simplicity, yes. right? Yeah. That it's an ongoing thing. Yeah. Can you just help us understand that a little bit? Sure. And sometimes we equate spiritual uh, maturity with Jesus as like you get to a certain poise and not you. We've never arrived, but yes. in your idea model, it's like you kind of start again in a different version of stage one. Yes, that's right. You know, the image that 
comes to me sometimes is, is a, a spiral staircase. So you, you go around the circle and you get to the first floor. <laughs> um, uh, then you have to go around the circle again to get to the second floor and circle again. And I, so, or, or you can think of it this way. We have four seasons in a year, spring, uh, summer, fall, winter. Um, you go through those four stages and guess what? They start again, but they start yeah. again and you're a different person than you were the first time you went through them. And so if, if we think of stages in that way, there, it's an iterative process and it sort of makes sense. I start with simplicity. I move to complexity. I move to perplexity. I integrate those in harmony. Harmony becomes my new simplicity. And guess what? If I live long enough, I'm going to face new complexity that's going to challenge that simplicity. A quick example. I learned that love is the most important thing. That's great. And then I'm introduced to people who are more difficult to get along with than any I've had to deal with before. And now I've, I'm back to being a beginner. <laughs> I can think that love is important, but now I realize I don't know how to do it. And I need those pragmatics. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I love the idea of the hum the humility piece for me. I wrote that down here. The mystery and humility that you mentioned a few moments ago. That's so huge for me. It's it's so important, like leading for both Mel and I as we lead in local church contexts, but also in other circles, that the more Jesus transforms and changes us, the more I'm aware of how much I need Jesus. And that, oh. that then compels me then to be a different kind of leader. Yes. And in some ways, I, I will admit, Brian, maybe you've thought this too, as you've been you know, used to church plant and pastor that it feels like I wish it was back to stage one or stage two. Cause that felt like, I just wish I had some more certainty. In it. it felt like that would just be so much easier. I, but I know I don't want to pick that, yeah. but man, the, the idea of the place we're in and trying to be humble and embrace mystery. Sometimes it feels like a, a heavy space to be in. What would you say to people who are like, I'm right in the middle of that perplexity and yeah. it's tough sledding, you know? Yeah, you know, so uh, I'll tell you, uh, I don't know if this is uh, either of your experience, but um, there's a whole lot of people who go to seminary. You know, they have a great experience as a young person in a youth group and they go to seminary and in, in a way they're in stage two and they're going to seminary to get more stage two information so they can go out and do their stage two Christian work. And then they, they go to seminary. And they're, they're exposed to all kinds of knowledge that they didn't know was out there. And, and they, a lot of times, their first month or two in seminary, they're plunged into stage three. And yeah. a, a lot of people, that's an agonizing couple of months. But I, I would say, with, I can't think of a single exception in the last 10 years or so. Every person I've met who goes to seminary and goes through that process looks back on seminary as one of the best experiences in their life because once they're through the shock, to be in a community of people where you can ask any question, where you can read any book, where your professors aren't there to uh, criticize you for thinking, they just want you to think in the best and most you know mature way you can. Um, right. They find that there's incredible joy in stage three. The problem isn't stage three. The problem is all the stage one and stage two people criticizing you for, for being in stage three. <laughs> so what, what that says to me is that what we need to keep the joy alive is at least two or three friends. And if that number two or three sounds familiar, I think we should let it. That, that's yeah. often how change happens. 
you are in a sense alienated from the larger society because it's operating on all kinds of myths. And if you're growing beyond those myths and, and you're growing beyond those prejudices and those easy answers and false assumptions, you, you need a couple of people with whom you can let your hair down and feel the joy of being in the stage you're in. Um, uh, you know, I, I, because I'm doing some work with the Center for Action and Contemplation and Richard Rohr and I are close friends and colleagues. You know, I've always loved uh, St. Francis, but I've sort of deepened my engagement with St. Francis. And, you know, Francis's two words were humility and joy. And I mm. just think there's deep, deep wisdom with those two. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could tell people in stage one that the most important thing you need is humility and joy <laughs> to help you become yeah. a person of love. Now, if we really help, that would help people be in stage one and then it, they'd be ready for stage two and then they'd be ready for stage three <laughs> rather than feel that there's a, a lid on them and they're not supposed to grow. Yeah. Amazing. Brian, I want to say this, and I know that we're kind of ending our conversation here, but as I listen to you, all the books you've written, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, <laughs> Uh, what people have said about you, what people have loved you. How do you do it? I think for somebody who is a communicator for both of us, we're both in leadership and in Christian work. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you know I, looked, I look at you and go, wow, you know, what a life. And yet you've lived a lot in the highs and lows and you've been very courageous in your words and your beliefs. I, I, maybe I don't know what I'm asking. What's sustaining you? Why? Mm -hmm. How you... You don't listen to the people. Maybe just some insight, almost like as yeah. a mentor and leader yeah. to us. Well, first, uh, Melinda, I can because you and I are both in the public eye. You know, we know something about the emails you get and the Twitter things you you know. And so, and and one of the things you have to get used to is that that Christians are human beings, and you see the best of human beings and the worst of human beings just with Christian language on it. Uh, and so one of the things that's helped me is to lower my standards, <laughs> uh, lower my expectations, to, to not expect Christians to be better than they are. They, they are what they are, and I just need to accept that. But another thing that's really helped me is to have a couple of friends who I can just be honest with and say, that hurt, I'm discouraged, I'm tired, I'm worn out. I, I feel like I'm body slammed by this, you know. Um, I have a dear friend who called me, oh, this is over 10 years ago. And he said, hey, Brian, I always heard that you were getting attacked and criticized. I Googled your name. Dude, it's bad. <laughs> and, and then, but here's what he said that was so good. He said, will you promise me something? If some, he says, you're a big boy, you're used to all this. But he said, if something, somebody says something that hurts you, just forward it to me so that I can read it too. So you're not the only one who's having to bear it when somebody hurts you. And I thought wow. with a friend like that, who understands like that, it, it can help you get through an awful lot, you know? So having a couple of friends like that means a lot. And then the last thing I'd say is, I understand as never before why Jesus kept getting off to be alone and often went out into the, into the wild we call it the wilderness, but it just means the wild. I think it's because so many of our problems are social structures. It's 
communities that are in that sort of stage one warrior mindset and they've got to go out and fight people and they're not going to change. So I have to get time to get away and recenter myself in God and to remember mm. that this world, the, you know, the trees out my window are doing just fine without reading that blog or caring about that Twitter, uh, uh, you know, th thread mm -hmm. uh, or caring about what that radio preacher said about me. They're doing just fine. And if I situate myself back in God's world, <laughs> I can, you know, detach. I, I, you know, it's so funny. I always used to see Jesus going away as thinking it was very pious. He was going away to pray. Well, yeah, he was to be in God's presence. But I think a big part of it was he just had to detach from the craziness of all these people in there working out their stuff that they need to work out. That's good. That's good. I think that's those are three good things, Brian, I think for, you know, Matt and I, like as we lead people, <laughs> as we have high expectations for people <laughs> and then or our, our intentions or motivations are misconstrued or read differently than what, what, you know, is my intention. And yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And then I think it's just the fear that because sometimes you fear that then a lot of times you may not speak. And I think this, I'm speaking for myself, yeah. speak the full truth because you're, you're afraid of retribution or what people are going to think and, and trying to get past sort of the people pleasing, but realizing, yes. you know, God has me in this platform. So how will I hold it and, and speak it and speak, you know, truth and love with humility, joy and mystery, you know, sprinkled in on it. So that's really good. And I, I think I'm always wanting to ask you that because, you know, you, you can be on Time Magazine and then, yeah, you can be on these these <laughs> these blogs with what you're what's being said. And then you can be on the top of like the conference circuit, Brian, and then be like, and this is what happens. And so as yeah. I've been following you, but. But I, mm. I just, I'm encouraged by you and just the, the steadiness of you, the faithfulness of, I think, of what God has called you to do and speak. It's been, it's been really encouraging. Well, really I, encouraging. I, and I wouldn't want to give any false impression. Uh, there are days where I'm just ready to say, uh, yeah, uh, let me go do something else. Especially watching, you know, Christians in politics where I live in these last couple of years, it's just, and I think it's going to get a lot worse. I think we haven't seen how bad it's going to get. And uh, and I just think there's no bottom for a certain kind of religion tied to white supremacy and nationalism and all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. I just think we, we, all are, we ought to prepare ourselves for it getting a, a lot worse. But then we say, okay, I have no control over how bad they get, I, but I have some uh, control over how I want to live. And, and mm -hmm. that I think is, is the best, uh, is the best we can do. Uh, you know, Thomas Merton wrote a letter once to a friend who was discouraged. And he said to the, him something like this, you have to give up your sense of control over the results. You have to say, I'm going to try to do the right thing and speak the truth and speak it in the best way I can do what's mine to do. And the results are out of my hands. And, I think that's it, it's necessary for our sanity, and I think and it's true as well. Yeah, that's good, Matt. Mm. Any last thoughts? I I guess I just feel uh, like hopeful out of reading your book and this conversation again. Uh, I I personally do believe a new a new way of being spiritual family and community is desperately needed, and for even my young adult kids who right now I think um, kind of humor me with with my faith, but aren't interested themselves. I think 
they need to see something different and being able to admit, I don't know. And I have doubts. I think it's really important for other people to uh, find and encounter Jesus because else they feel like, am I the only one who has these? And they feel alone when really we all have this and it's okay to admit it. And Jesus does something special in that. And so I'm kind of, it's like a weird hopefulness. Yes, like yes. I think things need to be undone in yes. order for something new to be. And I think God is already doing that. I just, we're just in the, in the murkiness of, I don't know what that's going to look oh my like. Gosh. So that, strange way I'm hopeful, Brian. So thank you. Well, the, you know, that, that resonates with me. I used to be worried that the church would die. And now I'm worried that the church will live on in more harmful ways. And, and so instead, so now I see the dying process, the deconstructing process is so necessary so that whatever lives on doesn't carry um, really, really harmful uh, uh, dimensions to it. And, you know, that's where stage theory, stage theories can be abused. They can be ways of claiming superiority over other people. But I think properly used, they're ways of helping us not be so mad at people to say, of course, they're reacting that way. That, that's where they are in life. And I need to have compassion on them. And if I attack them, that's just going to make them hunker down all the more in that stage. But if I can extend sort of a welcoming hand when they're ready to take it, that might be the best anybody can do. Amazing. Yeah, beautiful. Brian McLaren, thank you so much. Matt, thank you so much for your co-hosting. And Brian, hopefully it won't be like 15 years at a sushi sushi bar when I see you again, but really appreciate your time, your thoughts, uh, your, you know, the platform and your words in, in just giving such, you know, just great understanding and a pause, you know, as we sort of journey in, in our faith and following of Jesus. So thank you so much. So nice to be back thank in you, touch with you both. Thanks. Well, thanks, Matt, Vincent and Brian McLaren. What a great conversation. And now let's go to the studio to hear from Chris Chase and Art Kung and Matt as they talk about how they have doubted within uh, their own faith and spiritual journey, their honest conversations about why they're afraid to share about their doubts, uh, the value of doubt, and what unity with Jesus really looks like. So let's go to them now and hear that conversation. So See Here Love is passionate about justice for everyone, everywhere. And that's why we are so honored to partner with IJM Canada, an organization working toward just that. IJM Canada's mission is to protect people in poverty from violence by rescuing victims, bringing criminals to justice, restoring survivors to safety and strength, and helping local law enforcement build a safe future that lasts. If you'd like to be a part of this work, go to ijm.ca and find out how you can become a freedom partner today and help rescue and protect millions of people worldwide. All right, so much to talk about. Let's jump right into it. Chris, I'm going to start with you. Have you experienced doubt in your own spiritual journey? And what was that like then for you? Um, I've never experienced doubt. I don't know what you're talking about. Are you crazy? Like, uh, <laughs> well, how, how dare you? No, um, I had some mental health challenges probably in 2016. And I remember the doubt was, am I ever going to be the same person ever again? Mm. Where is God in the midst of this pain? Because nothing, it was like a short circuit in my brain that went to my body and nothing was making sense. And so this idea of like, 
God, I know you, I've sung about you for years. I've read about you for years. I've known you for years. And suddenly you feel so far away and having this understanding of, so what does that look like and mean for me? That was a really, really, really interesting experience to go through for myself and for my family. Right, did it leave you feeling like unnerved, like loosened as you kind of were going into those places? Uh, afraid, right. afraid, because there's so much that's compacted. It's your, it's your life, it's your career, it's your story. It's who you've said you've been for yeah. years and suddenly none of that makes any sense. And so you start, not only do you doubt God, but you also doubt yourself and God as well. So it's a really scary experience. Yeah. How about for you, Art? Yeah, I, I've had so many measures of doubt throughout my life, whether it was early on when I first became a Christian, you know, you, you, you doubt every week whether you're a Christian. So every time there's an altar call, you go back up. Every week you were doing that, right? You, you got to make sure, right? Like <laughs> you got to make sure Billy Graham's coming again. Let's 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 go get yeah. saved again. And so doubt happened throughout my uh, early Christian years, but I think even later on, uh, like Chris was alluding to, when you're in ministry and you're doing stuff and you're you call yourself by this name as a Christian, as a representative of Him, maybe uh, vocationally, how can you doubt? You're supposed mm -hmm. to be the solid and the expert. And, and when you have doubts there, uh, there is part of this stuff where Chris was talking about earlier is that that's the shame. You can't share possibly with anyone else, especially if you're mentoring people. Yeah. Sometimes these, these doubts are really hard and you don't know what to do. It, it, you know, there's fight and flight. There's also freeze. Sometimes we freeze in our doubt and we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, I relate to that. I remember the first time I was kind of wrestling with some of these things myself when it came to like different theological ideas, constructs, different passages of scripture. And it felt like, am I allowed to actually take this, take this brick out of the wall of my faith and like look at it from other angles? And what happens if it was there and I feel like it belongs here? And it felt, it felt like, uh, am I allowed to even do this? And it felt very foreign and strange. Uh, kind of a, a, yeah, a scary place to be. I think Chris used the word scary in the beginning. So let's talk about then, we've all experienced it in different ways. Um, what have you learned then about the value of doubt? How have you seen that to be a valuable part of your growth and relationship with Jesus? I think it allows, questions are okay. Sorry for that sentence to come out so broken up, but it, questions are okay. And we're in this season now, it's, it's, a, it's a buzzword, deconstruction. And I think deconstruction to reconstruction is right. the key. The value of doubt is it allows to reconstruct what your faith looks like okay. and yeah. how to build it and who it's built on. And also the value of community, to have people around you who are willing to sit with you and, and coach you through and wait with you until you're able to kind of go, okay, this makes sense for my journey moving forward. Yeah. So there's value to it because it allows you to kind of stop and go, so who am I? Who is he? This is who he is. This is who I am. And this is what he wants me to do moving forward. You know, Chris, I just want to say this, and to, mm -hmm. maybe to you guys just as a quick question. Uh, for somebody who's watching this process of your doubt, how is, the, is it the best way to respond in community? Because I know there's people going, I may not be there, but I know somebody who is. Yeah. And how can I be loving and respond? Because I, I could be saying the wrong things. <laughs> that could be harmful. Right. Like, what would you say? Like, right. how, how can I best support you through that? Hmm. I would just say be there. I, my, my natural propensity is to be an answer person, to be a fixer, 
don't ask my wife about that because then I won't be able to do the show anymore. But this idea of like always having an answer for stuff. And sometimes the best answer is just being there with somebody. Yeah. Being there and listening and accepting all of the stuff that comes out. And every so often coaching and be and encouraging along as opposed to giving an answer. Don't stop doubting. Just believe. Yes. I, if you not ask me how I know he lives, he lives do. within my heart. That's not what they need at that moment. What they need is a friend. What they need is a sibling to kind of say, I've got you. I'm with you. Yeah, someone who jumps in and just dismisses it with like a passing comment. Just believe it's okay. That, it's, it, that doesn't help at all. That's good. How about you, Art? What no, have you learned about the, the value of doubt in your own journey? Yeah, it's similar. I think uh, doubting means that you're analytical, means you're giving it real thought. If, if it's nothing to doubt, it's just too solid and too stable. It's like, uh, is it worth having faith in even? I mean, uh, I don't have to have faith in my, my cup of coffee because I know it's right there. But do I have to have faith that whoever made it didn't poison it and didn't, didn't do something awful? There's no COVID in there or whatever it is, right? The, the, Am I allowed to question things? Absolutely. And when it comes to faith, something as valuable as a life with Jesus, how could you not have questions? How could you not? If you if you didn't have it, then maybe you just understand a very shallow part of it. Mm-hmm. And so I believe in in giving freedom to doubt, to question. I did that raising up my son uh, right from early years. Why do we do this? Well, you know saying because dad said so is not good enough mm-hmm. right there's there's a reason like let's discuss this do you value this why do you value this why do you not value this mm-hmm. and so having doubts really helps you to suss things out it's like you talk about deconstruction and i i just went through a five-year deconstruct reconstruct of my back deck <laughs> and why it took five years because i froze mm-hmm. after I deconstructed what was wrong. I found what was wrong. I was just overwhelmed and overcome yeah. with what was wrong. And how do I move forward and fix it? Do I have the ability to fix this? Yeah. I, I can't afford to fix this. Huh. You know, and you have all these. That's the one. Things. That's the one, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's yeah. valuable to doubt because you're tearing things apart and finding what's wrong. So you can find what is sustainable and good. Yeah, that's I, good. I, I feel that like doubt. You, yeah. I feel like doubt gives us. Um, the permission and the space to own our faith for ourselves. Mm, so yeah. it's like the transition, at least for me, it was a transitionary period where instead of just believing things because I was always around it or taught to just believe these things, it gave me kind of the territory to break things down, ask questions, dig in so that I could own my faith for myself. I felt like, mm-hmm. and this is why I believe. And so it was so important to get to that place with Jesus. I had to be able to mess everything up and dig in on stuff that made it difficult. And not that that was always easy, but it allowed me to get to that place. So I guess that leads perfectly into our next question. Chris, we'll start with you. So what then does unity or harmony look like for you? Um, Brian talks about it in his book, the state of uh, perplexity or doubt. And then we move to this place of harmony and unity with Jesus. So what does that look like for you on the other side of doubt? I think... I think you kind of illustrated it, and I would put it this way. It's being in the sandbox with Jesus. Hmm. And sand is messy, 
sand you know like we we have kids and we've gone to the beach and you're coming home and there's sand everywhere all the time <laughs> but to know that you can be in the mess with him right and mm -hmm. you're both trailing yeah. sand when you're walking away from 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 the, from the sandbox together and he's making sand castles with you and he is digging with you and he's allowing you to be he's in the mess with you unity with him is being a part of that and not feeling like you are making something and going seeing Jesus does it look okay does it feel okay did, are you proud of me but he's actually going like actually we know we should do we should actually use a couple more buckets here yeah and he's actually in the mess with you uh, walking with you while you're deconstructing as opposed to watching you from an observation perspective that God is watching this sort of thing, yeah. he's actually in the mess with you. Yeah, I yeah. like keep, that. I love that visual. Keep digging, keep yeah, building. Yeah, keep building, it's messy. I yeah. love that visual because I think that for even some of our own experience, we've been brought up with a very neat and tidy way of doing yes. a relationship with Jesus or church. It's always been this way here, are the very clear boundaries, and yeah. this is the yeses and nos. And I think now it's time in this moment to say, no, it's actually messy and there are questions and there are doubt, but isn't that the exciting part of it? Isn't a sandbox amazing mm -hmm. to create things yeah. and be dirty and there's no judgment in that? Yeah. That's a that's a great visual. 100%. I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. yeah. Art, how about you? Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go with the exact same analogy, <laughs> but not the sandbox. Back to my deck, the messy part when I sat there <laughs> just in the muck of it and and plywood for a deck board hmm. and uh, you know all that stuff pulled up digging up things so you can rebuild its foundation but having someone that i could consult with me along that journey was the moving part of it i would have stayed there if i didn't have my friends to say let let us help you let us figure this out together and they stand there together with me oh we gotta dig this out we gotta level this out we gotta compact this we gotta do that did all that together with somebody. That's when you're doing it. When you do it with Jesus, mm. when you do it with the word and you can analyze things together, you don't go and create your own deck by yourself with your own. You don't create your own religion. You don't create your own stuff. Yeah. It doesn't work. You have to have consultation with the experts. My contractors, without paying them, they're just my friends. <laughs> just get them come in. They get their hands dirty. They teach me things along the way. And then I can ask questions. Why are you doing that? Why does that have to do this? Mm. Well, you know, if you did this, it's the three, four, five rule. That's how you know it's square. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and you're learning things along the way. Yeah, that's good. But yeah. Yeah. That's good. Matt, what about you? You know, First uh, Corinthians 2, Paul says, I resolved to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And I think that's what this journey has taught me is that all these things that were on the outside that seem so central. I've been able to let them be what they're supposed to be. Not that they're not important. They're totally important. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is Jesus at the center. You are using the bounded kind of idea. Mm -hmm. And this is like a Jesus-centered idea, right? These things are all important, theological ideas, constructs. But I've learned to like let them be what they are and then just keep Jesus at the center and be okay a little bit with there's some stuff I just don't fully understand or fully know. Mm -hmm. And I know the perspectives, but it's like Jesus at the center. And that's given like freedom and life for me. I like that. And just, just quick, Jesus at the center for all three of you, because people are like, we want to be there. We're tracking with you guys in this conversation. What would Jesus at the center mean for you? Chris, what does that, what does that mean for you? For me, it means that one, it means I'm not alone. He's there with me at the center yeah. of it. And two, just piggybacking on, on Matt's, Matt's thought that he's the centrality where he's, he's the middle of the wheel. And we often care about the spokes, yes, right? But if there's no middle, the spokes have nowhere to go and they, the, the wheel collapses. He is the, he's the, the thing 
the key component that keeps the wheel actually being a wheel. And so Unity with him knows that like I'm there and the wheels keep on turning because he's there in the middle middle with me. I know. I love that. That's so good. that's good. my thought. Good image. Uh, Art, just quick, you're, what does that mean, Jesus at the center for you? Jesus at the center uh, for me is, what does it mean to be a Christian is to follow Christ. And Chris and I were talking about this earlier. We have this idea that we love to be at the foot of the cross, but we never like to be on it. So to be a follower of Christ, to follow him right to the cross, what does that mean? Am I willing to change my life and my values and the things that my life looks like to reflect Jesus more? I think that's what Jesus at the center. That's really good. Great. And then for you, Matt? It's all, the, it's all, it's these, all that? It's, it's all, all these things. things. It's like keep, fix your eyes on Jesus, keep him at the center, and through him interpret and understand the other things. I love it. <sighs> what an amazing show. Uh, so much good conversation, so much honesty. Brian McLaren just gave words and ideas to, I know for so many of you, um, thoughts that are in your head, but you just don't have the words for them. Uh, I also hope that this conversation encouraged you as you're in the different stages of faith, whether it's simplicity, complexity, perplexity, or harmony and solidarity. I hope it encouraged you to uh, move from each stage uh, to really deeply think about what it means to follow Jesus, what he's asking of you, and not to be afraid of doubt, that there's value in doubt as the hope is that it then would move you into harmony, integration, and community, and and to a community that loves you and supports you in, in the work and, and how you live out each day. So, so glad you joined us. I'm so glad Matt was there to co-host. It was so much fun. And always know, as you question and doubt, as uh, you go through the four stages of faith, know this, that you are seen, you are heard, and you are deeply, deeply loved by God. Thanks for joining us. Uh, hope to see you, hear you, be with you uh, on our next episode.